the biggest stories from the pages of the London Free Press and LFPress.com. This is the London Free Press Podcast with your host, Rachel Gilbert. Welcome to the London Free Press Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert. This podcast is actually a continuation of a story written by reporter Randy Richmond back in March that follows a southwestern Ontario Indigenous family over generations during and after the 60s scoop and also touches on their traumas and triumphs. So today is a little bit different. We haven't done this on the podcast before in that we're welcoming a third guest. This is one of the subjects of Randy's story, Adrian Clark, and we're welcoming her today to hear her story. Hi, Adrian and Randy. Hi. Hi. Welcome, Adrian. This is kind of cool, Adrian, that we get to have you on the podcast. This is a first for us. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to and, and and interested to hear your perspective on a lot of Randy's reporting. Um, this story was called The Boy With Two Names, and it started with uh, your brother, Danny, also known as Clayton sometimes, uh, who was who died at Elgin Middlesex Detention Center was an unnamed uh, death. And Randy found out his name and then eventually called you. Um, so, Randy, just tell just kind of go over briefly, first of all, how you even really came to find this story and find out all of that information. Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, every time someone dies at the jail, no one no one publishes that. There's no release from the province or anything. So it's just sort of happenstance that you hear from people that somebody's died. Uh Clayton, Danny was the same thing. We'd heard there was a death. Um, I can't even remember how I got his name, Clayton Bissonette, through one of my sources. Um, and then uh, found Adrian through, I think, social media, Facebook, and his obituary. And um, just started contacting anybody I could. And uh, Adrian, you know, was great. The very first, you know, I, I was going to do a story about a man who died in jail. And I've done too many of those. Uh almost two dozen. And so I thought, well, here's going to be another story and I'll get some of the basic details. And, you know, it's, it's always similar. People are, the families are upset and saddened and don't know much information. And Adrian had a bit of that reaction, but then she said, basically said something like, you know, it's, it's going to take a while. we got quite a family history here. Do you want to hear it? So I said, yes. And at the end of that conversation, we both agreed that this was more than, um, more than a story that more than a regular jail story. And, um, and oddly enough, I mean, his name never really did come out that much. So some people knew it and some didn't, but for more than a year, he was quote, sort of that unnamed in all the media reports, that unnamed inmate, uh, as Adrian and I were talking more and more about the family story. So it was, you know, Adrian kind of set it all up saying, here's some, here's some stuff you might find interesting. And sure enough, mm-hmm. I did. Adrian, when you got a call from a reporter and I I've been that reporter before a lot of people don't want to talk to me as the reporter, you actually talked to Randy and not only did you talk to him, you gave him a lot of information. What was your first reaction when you answered the phone and why did you agree to talk to him about all of this? Well, I have to say, um, I've had, um, interactions with media, uh, in 2006, my son was killed by street racers. So I did have um, an experience with lots of different medias and lots of different people who work in the media. And at first I was a little taken back. I thought, you know, why is there an interest in my brother? And 
what what is it that you need to know? And I just thought, you know, many times a lot of things that need to be spoken about are not spoken about because people are fearful of the media. And I just thought the media is a tool and I've gone down this road before. I kind of have an idea of how things are going. And then the more I got to know Randy, the more I knew that his heart was in this story. He, he had uh, an interest that was beyond just writing a story. So that began the relationship and um, that, that, that's what started everything. I think. At that point, um, you, you knew your brother, Danny, um, but you didn't know him growing up. Let's kind of go back to your childhood. Um, you were part of the 60s scoop. You were put into foster care and then eventually adopted. Can you just tell me the process of, of how that went? How old were you when, when you were taken? Uh, well, my understanding is, um, and when I say my understanding is, there are reports that were written about myself and other 60 scoop survivors that don't really match stories we hear from family members that that were in this case adopting or fostering um and also you know once you are able to make that connection which isn't the case for all 60 scoop survivors um with your birth family there's another story so um i can only tell you what um what my understanding is, and that is that my mother uh, did try to keep us. Um, however, she was unable to retain a lawyer and the judge told her not to come back to the court unless she had that. I do know that she did visit me at the foster home um, and I was an infant at the time. And my understanding is that I was adopted to the family when I was nine months old. And what and, was your what was your your home life like when you were growing up in, in when you were pretty young? Um, I'm going to say that uh, I had a rough childhood. I had a rough childhood because of many different factors. And um, I'm not here to put the blame on anyone. I as a grown adult, I can understand uh, some of the pressures and some of the stressors that my adoptive family was under and I have um, verbally forgiven people who harmed me um, in physical, emotional, uh, mental ways. And I don't really want to get into the details of the abuse. Um, and I, I kind of want to steer clear of that because I don't want to sensationalize something that um, I went through and did shape me into the person I am, but I could take a stance of, you know, feeling sorry for myself or, you know, making it um, traumatic. And, and it was traumatic. Um, there were a lot of things that happened, the breakup of my adoptive parents when I was in grade four, moving to moving back from Toronto, which was a place that I enjoyed growing up in because I what I didn't look different from everyone else. Everyone looked different in Toronto. Mm. And there were no, never any questions about like, where are you from? And, you know, like all of these sorts of things. I just felt um, probably most complete when I was growing up in Toronto. Mm. And then when I moved to uh, Southwestern Ontario, completely different 
atmosphere very much about who I was and, you know, where I was from and a lot of racism from young children, which, you know, um, I have to say, even as a child, I remember saying to these kids, you know, if you're going to be racist and call me, which is what they did, um, I told them, you know, at least be correct about it. Call me a wagon burner, call me a Wahoo, like whatever the, 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 slur that you want to use at least be correct about it i'm indigenous and i'm irish so if you want to come at me about you know the way i look please be correct about it and you know it never i mean you're talking to people who cannot understand that concept or what have you so and i i think it was difficult for me because I didn't have an identity. I knew that I was Indigenous. I knew that I was adopted. I knew all of these things from a very young age. However, I remember there was a book book called uh, Are You My Mother? I don't know if anybody remembers that book. It was about a little bird. I really connected with that. Yeah, I really connected with that story because I was always looking. I'd be in the backseat of the car. We'd be at a mall. I would be like people watching to see if I saw anyone who looked anything like me because yeah. I did so different from the family that adopted me. You, uh, your, your mother had nine children, some of which she kept, some of which she, she didn't keep. You were uh, take, taken into foster care and then adopted. You have two other brothers that you have in your adult years reunited with. Um, yeah. Did you know that you had those siblings when you were a kid? No. You didn't know about them? I didn't. And I didn't realize how close we were. I I know that two of my brothers had grown up together, not knowing that they were brothers playing hockey together. Um, and they were 45 minutes from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I had no idea. When you... When you finally, and I, I want to get back to when you met them, but because you're talking about the identity piece, both of your brothers um, have said that they've also struggled with identity growing up. Uh, one of them didn't even know he was an indigenous at all. Um, is, do you think that that's common for a lot of the kids who were in the 60s scoop? Have you heard that a lot? Yes. Yes. I've gone to uh, a couple of 60s scoop gatherings and... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really heart wrenching because you feel your whole life that you do not belong anywhere. You know, when you're with, like my brother had said, when he was with white people, he, you know, would tend to try to get away with being white. Um, And, you know, when you're with indigenous people who know the culture, who know the language, it's, it's intimidating because you feel um, not only grief, but you also feel like a, a an inability to connect with them and almost like a fraud, like you, mm. you really shouldn't be there. Did you so, learn about Indigenous culture at all when you were a kid? Did your brothers? Um, I personally did not. I never went anywhere. I had an aunt that would bring me totems and um, little trinkets that she had gotten in bc Mm. but i'd never been to a powwow to a sweat to anything i i'd never seen any of my people Mm -hmm. uh during my childhood um talk about meeting your 
your brothers for the first time and well, how you even got in touch in the first place? How did you find each other? And what was that first meeting like? I think for most of my life, I really romanticized about meeting my mom. Mm. And, um, and that was like a big thing for me because I had read that she did want me. And, you know, when you're growing up and you understand that you're adopted, there's this piece that comes along with that. And then if you're being told you're not a good person as a child or you're being mistreated, you start to think that perhaps you were some sort of evil spawn and, you know, like you were just kind of tossed out into the world and somebody got you, but, you know, it was unfortunate they got you. Mm -hmm. So it was really difficult for me. um, And I put out an application for adoption disclosure and so did my two brothers and that's how we got connected and my partner at the time was also adopted uh, not part of the 60 scoop but also indigenous and scottish and he had put his in as well and i think it was around 2000 that uh, we both got calls and the call i received uh, was that my mother and father had both died and there was like a glimmer of of something when they said you have two brothers that also were in care and they want contact. So, I mean, you know, there was a silver lining there. Yeah. What was that first meeting? Like where, where did you get together? What happened? So um, we got together at my house in Burlington and one of my brothers um, is a vegan. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll make a vegetable pasta sauce and I'll make a meat pasta sauce and then we'll just all get together. And they both came and I got to meet my brother and his five children and his wife. And I got to meet my brother, Dave, and his girlfriend at the time. And I had gone out and purchased them um, dream catchers as Mm -hmm. a gift to give to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because... My partner was also Indigenous. I started to learn more about my culture mm-hmm. with my partner. So he was teaching me a lot of things that I didn't know, much of it being um, the history behind what our people had gone through. And um, the cultural piece I was looking at when before I got uh, the call, I was a part of a member of the Hamilton Regional Indian Center. And there I received some um, uh, teachings and uh, I met some people that took me under their wing and I did a story in um, the two row uh, newspaper on six about my looking for my family. And, uh, you know, I just kind of, went from there, started taking language classes and. Did you, um, did you learn more about your history in, in meeting your brothers? Did they, were they able to fill in some gaps for you or maybe were the three of you all kind of searching together for, for some more information about your family history? I think our first meeting was really overwhelming because it was the first time I think that any of us had looked at someone and recognized a piece of ourselves there. Mm. And I think that it was overwhelming. And 
I think that we were all very scared about we're meeting adult siblings. We have no few, like we have no past uh, relationship or memories of one another. Yeah. And um, you know, who, who could these people be? I remember being very, um, very weary and I'm sure my brothers were as well. Sure. And, uh, and then my brother, David just went on um, a bit of a, an adventure and went to our reserve and he found out all kinds of information. And between he and I, we found our older siblings and uh, from there, answers were starting to come out. We were meeting um, family members and things like that. Wow. Um, I don't expect you to tell us the significance of this, but maybe any, any of any uh, your perspective on this would be would be nice because so many people, white people know their history. We know our family history. Um you have grown up only known, knowing fragments of your history. And we take that for granted that we know our our background, our ancestry, our family tree. Um, can you, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Have you thought about that? Do you have friends who you've, you've talked to about that? Um, because people do take that for granted and and you didn't have that. And that's something that you're continually searching for, it sounds like. Yeah, I think I'm I'm done the search. I think I know who I am. Okay, uh, and I'm really proud of who I am. And uh, I think that everything that I've gone through in my life um, has led me to this point. Mm. So to say, um, taking it for granted, a hundred percent. Fifty five years old, and I'm just knowing who I am. I'm just feeling super confident in the person that I am. And I still don't know everything, but I feel as though I'm finally in a really good place. Mm -hmm. And I think that because people do not experience things like this, and because people do not uh, experience many tragedies or traumas or um, issues, uh, they have a difficult time to relate. They have a difficult time to be able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Right. Um, and those that can, I think they're, they're wonderful people and they, and they offer that allyship that is necessary. Mm -hmm. You've done a lot of um, advocating for the indigenous community, a lot of research on your own. I know that you're part of uh, many groups um, do you find that people are willing to learn about the 60 scoop, even residential schools and more about indigenous culture? Are are people outside of the indigenous community willing to learn more about that and maybe how we can reconcile or at least just know about it? So I want to say this about reconciliation. I feel that it is a uh, word that gets thrown around and not many people understand what it is that they need to reconcile with. Mm. And I feel that because a lot of um, the history of Canada and the um, genocides that have happened in Canada um, ha and the narrative that's been sold, I was sold on the narrative for years myself. I really truly believed in all of the stories about Canada being such a peacekeeping, wonderful place to come and live. And, you know, 
And then I went to university and I found out the truth, the truth behind the narrative, that the narrative is a false narrative, that it's here to breed um, like a false security for Canadians because um, there's a lot of racism that happens from the top down. And those acts of violence and uh, death and oppression, um, they're there for a reason. And there's a reason to divide people. Um, and there's division within Indigenous communities as well because of colonization, because of all of these acts of violence and um, attempts of uh, full genocide of Indigenous people. And I think it's difficult for um, others to understand yeah. because we are in, um, I, I like to say it's like a hamster wheel uh, where we are just working towards the things that we believe are the goals of our lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after learning more about my culture, I know that owning a home isn't a goal. Uh, graduating university isn't a goal. And um, owning a nice car and having property and, you know, maybe having a car. These are all uh, false goals. Mm -hmm. These are all goals to keep us working and so um, I feel like, you know, if people actually start to critically think about things and investigate the histories and investigate what's happened in this country, they're in for a rude awakening. And I think more people will be um, able to understand why it seems that Indigenous people are always complaining, because that's what I've heard my whole life. Like, can you not get over it? You lost this country. Right. You know, your, your people lost the war. Well, or it's, it's entirely... your fault or something. Yeah. 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 Or if yeah. you weren't like, you know, if you weren't an alcoholic or if you weren't, I mean, you know, we, I grew up with many alcoholics around me and they weren't indigenous. Mm -hmm. Let's be straight. And, you know, the trauma that indigenous people have was a gift to us. It wasn't something we created on our own. And many of the situations of of settlers are traumas they created on their own. Yeah, yeah. You I know, want to talk a little bit more about the importance of this story. But first of all, Randy, I know I've we've kind of put you on hold for about 15 minutes okay. here. <laughs> but I'm just so wrapped up with Adrian. It's it's um it's so great to talk to her. But why did you because uh, you've written a few stories about this, this family and kind of some offshoots and, and um, a few different stories about this. Why is that important to you? Why did you want to continue continue searching into this? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you can see, though, from talking to Adrian, why I why I was captivated right from the start. Yeah. Adrian yeah. is a compassionate, passionate, articulate, intelligent uh, woman and, and spokesperson so it was automatically just a joy to listen to um to her stories mm -hmm. all those many of them are harrowing uh you know it's it's kind of hard to explain it it just was such a family narrative of, about lost children uh, who you know who were searching their whole lives for for something for each other um find each other and then lose a key member of the family just when they 
we're about to get to know him the, the most. And I don't, I, you know, it's hard to explain why I kept going. There's just something about this story that is so deeply personal to them and so reflective of our country. Mm-hmm. And Adrian was talking about reconciliation. And when she talked about the things that we all want or supposed to want cottages, houses, homes, cars. And I think maybe what she's kind of getting at it. And as I talked to her more and more, learning more and more is like reconciliation. It's going to be hard to take place until we understand that, there's just totally different ways of approaching the world and that the, our way of approaching the world, wanting all those things is actually destroying the world. So I think it, it may not be reconciliation. It may be climate change, but I think we're coming to the same place a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way, but that's a long winded answer to your question. No, I'll let Adrian take it over now. <laughs> well, I, I, and I just wonder, Adrian, if there, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure there is, but are there other people with similar stories to yours oh yes there are people who are in europe Mm. have no idea who were sold by canada to families in europe that are indigenous that belong here on turtle island Mm -hmm. who have no idea or maybe they have an idea but they don't know i mean where are the resources for them yeah um so what is the importance of continuing to tell these stories, having them out in the public? This one just started so we didn't know what we were going to get with this, Randy. It was um, an unnamed death at the jail. And and we've gotten this. And this is such a reflection of our, our culture and our history, how we've treated the Indigenous people. But what so I, I guess I want to hear from both of you the importance of continuing to report or just tell these stories. Go ahead, Adrian. You first. <laughs> All righty. Um, I would say the importance of telling these stories is to help everyone understand, um, like Randy said, we may not see the world in the same way. And we're reaching a point where there has to be some sort of not reconciliation, but there has to be some sort of understanding of one another. And there has to be work going forward that, you know, those of us who have, who have lost things, um, it's, it's actually a prophecy. It's called the, um, the eighth fire and we're, we're in it. And so it's about picking up the pieces of our bundles that we've lost. So, you know, I have this eagle feather, which is really important to me. And I got this eagle feather because of hard work that I, that I've completed. And um, it's a way of honoring that. And not everybody has an eagle feather. It's something to work, work for. And I I'm grateful for the gift. Um, But I think many people would be like, who cares about an eagle feather? Mm. But I think the teachings that Indigenous people have to offer are really important, especially at this time in the way the world is. You yeah. can only extract so much. You can only put so much. You know, we've been telling our stories about pollution, about um, ecological racism that happens like on reserves, close to reserves that affect the people there. They're being they're being killed by progress. Mm-hmm. And nobody cares because it's not in there. It's not. It's not a 
attached to them. It's not their ideal, right? It's not their. Well, it's it doesn't even affect them, right? So, right. okay. Until until your water is poisoned, until you can no longer eat from the ground, and and it's all happening. I mean, you know, if you are able to research all the things that have been buried into the ground by corporations and governments, you don't know where they've buried these toxic chemicals to get rid of them in the seventies, but they're there. And eventually everyone's going to be wanting some sort of guidance just the same as they did when they first got here, when they Mm. first settled here Mm -hmm. and they're going to come to us. And I think a lot of Canadians are terrified that indigenous people are going to treat them the same way that we were treated. And that means, you know, shipping them off to wherever they originate from. And there are some Indigenous people who feel like that. I mean, how could you not? Mm -hmm. However, there are a great deal of Indigenous people who just want the harmonious connection with our little brother and to be able to teach him the right way to live and what is the good life. And many uh, Europeans... uh, colonizers believed that the good life was to have other people slaving and working for you and you just, you know, reaping in the benefits. And that's something that's still ongoing. However, the good life in an indigenous world is that everybody has everything they need. Yeah. Nothing more. You don't need to have more than what you need. Mm -hmm. And I think that difference in the worldviews has created such a, a, a massive divide And you have Indigenous people who are assimilated, who are supposed to be there speaking on our behalf. But you know what? They've been assimilated and they're not doing that job. Mm. They they have learned from their little brother that they can line their pockets and, you know, carry on and not have to answer for what they're doing because little brother will cover for them. I um we have a few minutes left and I wanted to talk about the reaction to Randy's story. Initially, he wrote this in March. It's called The Boy With Two Names. I encourage you to go and read it at lfpress.com. Some of the comments on the story were very negative. Adrian, what was your reaction to reading some of those? It was disheartening that there are that many Canadians who are unable to understand the complexity of what this um, Canadian government has done over 150 plus years and um you know to to victim blame was really uh difficult to to read um but i mean if this country doesn't start to critically think about all of the history of it and really really pay attention to what you're being told and what is reality, we're going to have a really difficult time reaching that harmonious place. Yeah, And I think that um, one of the comments was made um, and it was disparaging to me personally. And, um, you know, what I would say to that person is that I have no reason to lie. I'm not getting paid to talk about my pain. And I'm sorry that 
the comments that I made about my childhood, about the perspective of my childhood and how I was raised differs from yours. But critically think about that because you were there. And many of my adoptive family members sat by and watched me be mistreated and as an adult came back and apologized to me for allowing it to go on. So I I just want to say that because it really did hurt me that someone I consider family, someone I have reached out to numerous times would say such disparaging things about me and, and call me a, um, I think they said I was conning you or duping you, Randy. Um, I have no reason to do that. I'm not being paid for any of this. The whole reason I'm here to say my my story and to talk about my my family is not to punish anyone. And I mean, I I could have come in here and told you some pretty awful stories about things that I endured. However, that isn't the focus of what I my message want I want to be. Yeah. Is it about poor woe is me? It's more about let's make change. Let's work together to understand that, you know, the things that have happened are not without, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Consequences? Consequences, but there's, there's a reason behind it. So, you know, I'm not going to... Um, do something knowing that harm could come to someone or what have you without an intent as to why would I do that? So I think Canadians need to start asking their government more why questions. Why would you take people and put them on reserves? Why would you leave them out of the discussion? Because this country is not a democracy. If you understand what a democracy is, they left out an entire population in making decisions, the population that originally lived here. Mm -hmm. So what kind of democracy do you have? And those are the questions that you should be asking, not whether or not my mother was drinking or maybe ask yourself why she was drinking. Mm. Maybe ask those questions as to why she couldn't get a lawyer to get her children back. Those are the questions you should be asking. Those are the questions that I asked. Yeah. So, Randy, I wanted to ask you uh, the importance of of covering stories like this. Are you going to continue? Um, Do you think that there should be more stories coming out like this and and we should just highlight their histories, people's history? Yeah, I I do. I mean, I, I got into the story partly because I wanted to learn more. I like, I like to keep learning. Um, and, uh, you know, the very first time I talked to Adrian, I said, I'm going to make some mistakes and probably say some dumb things and mm-hmm. just tell me, you know, just tell me if I'm doing something wrong. And um, I think that's the approach that we should take because we should, we should learn. I think they're very important stories to do. I know other people are doing them. Uh, the scoop itself is very, has been underreported. Um, the, the residential schools got some more attention, but that took years. Mm-hmm. It takes a, a lot of stories over a lot of years to get people to move yeah. in their hearts and minds. So definitely would like to do more. Um, I, I don't know if I'll come across 
um, as an engaging people as I met. Adrian yes. and brothers like Adrian, to your story, yeah. but yeah. Adrian, I think there are, I mean, despite the negative comments that you got on this story, I think there are a lot of people who are interested to learn more, people who, who are not in, in the Indigenous community who are interested to learn more and um, might be like Randy, afraid of saying something stupid. You know, I'm I'm kind of afraid of that too. I said this to you before we started. I don't want to mess this up because I think this is such an important thing to get out there. Have you Have you found that? Has that been a positive to any of this? I think that there is a movement uh, moving forward. I think there is um, many people who, you know, I, I engaged with in university that were very taken back by being in an Indigenous course taught by an Indigenous professor because the goals of that Indigenous professor are not the same as a non-Indigenous professor. So I think being like fish out of water was a healthy thing for them mm. to not understand, well, what do you mean? Not a PowerPoint. What exactly do you want me to do? Because I'm stuck in this way of learning mm -hmm. that has been laid out for me to be successful. And now you're asking me to step away from technology and you're asking me to step away from research papers and, all of these things and you're asking me to speak from my heart and you're asking me to look at my own history and and try to bring that into an indigenous indigenous uh, worldview and and I don't understand mm -hmm. and so I think that if there is more um of an engagement taught not only in um university but in all levels of education about the history of this country mm -hmm. and about the mistakes that have been made and about the intention of a, a few leaders that there will come a time where you won't be worried and i don't think that you would really find anyone who is coming from the teachings of the seven generate or the seven grandfather teachings who would be upset if you mm. make a mistake or if you ask a question, there are no stupid questions. And I think indigenous people overall understand that we understand that there has been misinformation about us for years and years and years. And what we're trying to do, what we're attempting to do when we tell our stories is to bring that to light, is to make people more comfortable about coming and joining us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really getting the understanding of what, I mean, what is important? You have people in this country living in third world conditions. You have people living under conditions that no other Canadian would allow. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, um, the environmental racism is eventually going to be at your back door. It's not just a res problem. Right. So I think, you know, if people would step out of their comfort zone, if people would be brave enough to listen to the stories, to join Indigenous organizations, Indigenous people, um, we're looking at a different way of, of viewing things. And it's uncomfortable. 
and it will be uncomfortable. However, we have to get there in order to heal. And, and we're not the only ones who need to heal. Yeah. Yeah. That's such, that's a good point. And uh, that's a great point to leave it on. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. This was um, a new thing for us with three of us, one of our longer podcasts, but definitely compelling and important. So thank you to Randy and to Adrian for joining us today. Please check out Randy's stories at lfpress.com. The boy with two names, there's several, um, uh, additional stories that go along with that. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Randy and Adrian uh, in the future. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you for having me.